welcome to True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. Thanks again for joining us for our next lesson in our study on the heart of Philippians with Adam Barnes. In today's lesson, Adam talks about Philippians 1, 15 through 18, and he talks about sincere service. In this passage of scripture, we see some believers who have impure motives. We're going to see how this affects the building up of the body of Christ and how it affects our rewards as believers. Well, thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast. We hope that you enjoy this lesson. Preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter do out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives, thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. Thank you so much. So, who are the some? Some are pure motives. Well, starting out, he says, some, to be sure, are preaching Christ. Some of the brothers. Some of the the people who had trusted in Christ. So, we've probably got brand new believers. Paul's in Rome. He's preaching. Some of these people here, and they start teaching, and they start preaching. And they're going to have different motives for that. We're going to see what those are today. But let's talk about what the point of today's lesson is going to be. I'm going to read this so you follow along if you want to. Christians serve in the body for a variety of reasons. True? There's an assumption there. What is that assumption? Some do it for selfish gain. That some are serving. There's some who aren't serving, right? So there's automatically already a division here. Because we're assuming that some are serving. Christians serve in the body for a variety of reasons. Some serve out of pure motives, goodwill, and love for God and others. Others serve out of selfish ambition, competition, or jealousy. That's difficult for me to think about. But if you start looking for it, you can see it. And it happens, it does happen in the body. People serve out of competition, or they serve out of jealousy, and they serve out of selfish ambition. We're going to talk specifically about what that means. And that can be convicting if you analyze your motives, and you think about why you're doing what you're doing. It was for me because I was in this category at one point. That's convicting, and I don't like it. Next, a person's motives for service have the ability to enhance or disrupt the overall mission of proclaiming Jesus Christ. It's an either-or thing. There is an immigrant. There is a middle ground on this. It is it does have a scale aspect to it, but people's motives can affect, um, or enhance, or disrupt the overall mission of proclaiming Christ. And then, additionally, the final point—or not the final, but one of the points we'll see today—is that motives are going to affect a person's rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. Something else that's not talked about a lot that's important to get. Throughout life, there are going to be many people who bring strife into your life, circumstances, or ministry, thereby tempting you to lose focus on the ultimate goal of proclaiming Jesus Christ in your words and actions. So how should you interact and behave with these people? Because it's going to come. If you're serving, you're going to face opposition. And how you react in that moment or how you respond in that moment is somewhat going to determine the effectiveness of your ministry. So I want to have a proactive approach for you to be ready for that when it happens. In the context of today's passage, Paul remained focused on the big picture. 
He rejoiced because regardless of others' insincere motives, they proclaimed Jesus Christ. All right, there's the outlining goals. Really, we're going to talk about pure and impure motives because we already see that there are both. Then we're just going to get into the specific characterization of motives in the body of Christ and how it affects the body of Christ. Then we're going to get to the bottom line. That's something that I, that's the reason I put the point up front is because I always want the lesson to tie into what Paul's talking about. Uh, I've said this before, but you know that one of my favorite movies is John McClintock. John, Lay, John Wayne, when he finally gets back with his estranged wife, he knows there's a fight there. <clears throat> And he just he sits down with her and says, let's get to the rat kill. <laughs> so I like getting to the bottom line, getting to it quickly. So I put that up there, and then we're going to make sure that everything matches that point. We're going to talk about motives and rewards. This is a huge thing. If you look at Philippians as a book about eternal life, you're going to miss it. You miss the entire point. You miss so much of the richness and the fullness of what this book is if you're looking at Philippians as a way about how you should have eternal life. That's not what it is. Then we're going to look at the summary, the application, and the text. So here's our goals. Four things that I want you guys, at the end of this lesson, you can say that we, you get these, you've understand them, you've evaluated. So the first one is to understand the importance of motives on our actions. Motives on our actions. Two, evaluate your motives to serve. I want you guys to do some self-evaluation. Maybe it'll convict you. Maybe you'll find out that you're doing it right. Either way, think about it. And don't just do it today, but this should be an ongoing evaluation in your life because things change. Three, understand how an individual's motives can affect the body of Christ because they can and they do. This is a huge deal, and I'm not exaggerating. The reason that a person serves in the body will determine the effectiveness of the body. The effectiveness of the body will determine our culture. It's a huge deal. And it starts with the individual and spreads to the group. So it's important that we're on point. Four, to see from Scripture how our motives will affect our rewards at the judgment seat of Christ. We've talked a little bit about that already. So in the last lesson, verses 12 through 14, we saw Paul demonstrate a faithful and appropriate perspective by acknowledging that the circumstances of his imprisonment brought about what? Advancement of the gospel. Yeah, in, yeah, it was an increased spread of the gospel. Now, I want you to know that my circumstances have actually turned out for the greater progress of the gospel, he says. In this lesson, Paul reinforces that perspective by sidestepping some of the harmful intent of some of his rivals. And he keeps his focus on the proclamation of Jesus Christ. Because even at this early point in the gospel's advancement, strife, envy, jealousy, all that stuff has already started to creep into the body. And people were trying to seek to gain their own prominence. They like what Paul's doing. We've got a movement going on in the world, and they're a part of it, and they want some notoriety because they're part of it, and they want to be recognized. They want to be seen, and they want to be heard. However, Paul avoids an escalation of a potential problem by choosing to emphasize the outcome, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ, uh, instead of their insincere motives. So let's see what Paul was up against while he was in prison. And I went back a verse so that we could see it. He said, Most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. Kevin said it a minute ago, but most of the who? That's Christians. That's, that's hard. Most of the brethren who have trusted in the Lord. 
The people that Paul is going to describe in verses 15, 16, and 17 are people who have trusted the Lord, and they're speaking to other people about it. They're actually serving. They put their faith in Christ, and now they're going out and doing the ministry, but they're doing it for the wrong reasons. Then in verse 15, he says, Some to be sure are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter, the ones doing it out of goodwill, do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, this envy and strifers, they proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives because they think they're going to cause me distress in my imprisonment. He's really saying because they want to kick me while I'm down. I'm already enchained. I'm already in prison. They know that my mission is to take the gospel message out to the world, and they like that I'm in here because they're free to go do whatever they want, and they want, to kick, they want me to feel it. They want to kick me while I'm down. So there's two types of brethren proclaiming Christ in verses 15 through 17 characterized by their motives. So we're going to discuss and list the two people, types of people and their motives. The first type are preaching from what? Envy and strife. Okay, that's one of them, one of the types. What is envy? Jealousy. It is jealousy, but this is a spe- the word he uses here is actually a special kind of jealousy. It's only used, I think, twice in the entire Bible. Is that more like coveting? Yeah, it has that has a it has an aspect of wanting what another person has. It's actually ill will. You want something bad for this person. It's spite. You'd actually be happy if something bad happened to them. It's kind of how, you know. I don't know if you follow college football or this conference realignment stuff, but a lot of the OU fans were happy that OSU didn't get taken to the SEC. Maybe it's because of envy, maybe it wasn't. Maybe they're mad that we're happy in who we are and they want to be apart from us. Either way, it's an example of someone who wants bad things for us, and that's what he's talking about. The next thing is strife. When you think about strife, what do you think about? Hardship. Yeah, it's hardship. What'd you say, Kevin? Conflict. Yeah, that's that's what I think about. I think about contention. There's a lot of verses in Scripture about a contentious wife, and it has that same idea here. It's a verbal quarrel. It has a a verbal component to it. A verbal quarrel, uh, contention, always under a verbal attack, so put that in perspective. These people were preaching, and they're probably talking trash on Paul because it's a verbal quarrel. They're using their mouths to put him down. So who knows what they're saying? They could be defaming him. They could be maligning him. They could be saying, if his, gospel, if his whole purpose was to take the gospel and he's in prison, is he really who he says he is? Is he really from God? Because it doesn't sound right. But they, they wanted bad things for him. They, didn't, they weren't just jealous of him. There was a special kind of jealousy that they had for him. They wanted bad for him. They were preaching for that reason. That was their motive. The next one is that there was selfish ambition. Selfish ambition. I love this word. It's campaigning for your own gain at the expense of another campaigning for not just to promote yourself 
but to push somebody else down while you're doing it. What does that remind you of? Politics. Politics. And uh, some of the very early writings that were happening during this time, most of the time that this word is used, it's talking about people in politics. You think about in November or October, all those ads that promote one candidate while talking trash on the other one, pushing them down. That's selfish ambition. They wanted what was good for themselves while at the same time pushing somebody else down. That's scary. That these are believers preaching from selfish ambition, envy, and strife. There's hatred here. There's disunity. Paul's using them as an example for a reason, by the way, and we're going to see it in the, as a theme as we continue the book. And then the last one is causing distress. He says, they're thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Some translations say they're wanting to add to my chains. It really means pressure, or to keep, like, internal pressure or pressing together. It's like they want him to feel it. They're happy he's in jail, and they want him to know they're happy he's in jail. Who knows why? I don't know why, but this is their motive for why they're doing what they're doing. They want Paul to feel distressed. They want to add to his chains. They want to kick him while he's down. That's the first half. But then there's the other people. Those who are preaching from what? Love. Yeah, love and goodwill. He says goodwill. Goodwill here, he means on purpose to compare these two. He means to compare goodwill with envy and strife because they are opposites. He's using a juxtaposition here. It's kind intent. Goodwill literally means kind intent. These people have ill will and want bad for him. These people want good for him. They have kind intent towards him. And then love. And this is agape love. You know what that is. What is legape love? We've talked about it in this series already. Conditional. Unconditional. Sacrificial. Determined. On purpose, no matter what, love. It's desiring good for another. And I like it if you just want to write unconditional or sacrificial concern. And then something that ties these two together, these, type, these people who have goodwill and they're preaching Christ without fear for the right reasons, they understand that Paul is appointed. They understand that Paul is appointed. And to appointed means to lay, be set, to be placed, or to be situated. Who set, placed, or situated Paul in his circumstances? Jesus. They knew that Jesus appointed him for this. This is by it. They understood. When you understand something and you have goodwill because of it, in this sense, they're buying into Paul's message. They're saying, yeah, I believe that it was for this reason. I believe that Jesus sent you. I believe the message. And I don't like it that you're in jail, and we're going to support you. And we're going to help you. They wanted good things for him. They had goodwill towards him. So if you wanted to summarize, that's really what this, these next blanks are. If you wanted to summarize, verses 15 through 17 demonstrate that, that there are both pure motives. Would you say that these are pure motives? 
And if they're pure, what's the opposite? There's impure motives. Isn't that what he says? The former proclaim, proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives. So he tells us right at, he tells us in the verse, rather than pure motives, that's impure. And then there's the people who are doing it right. The people doing it out of goodwill are serving out of pure motives. The people who are preaching Christ from envy and strife are doing it from impure motives. So the two types of people, people preaching from envy and strife, and people from uh, goodwill. Then he characterizes them by pure motives and impure motives. So two types of motives, pure and impure, and we're going to start to characterize what that looks like so that we can make application in our life. But before we do that, let me ask you this. Why does the purity of motives matter? How do motives affect the body of Christ? Because the answer to both of those questions is intertwined. You tell me. Why does it matter? You are divine. That's, that's exactly what we're going to get to. There can either be unity in the body, or there can be division in the body. It's one or the other. We're going to see that. That affects the body of Christ. These matter because they're built because of their ability to affect the body of Christ. Motives matter in many aspects of scripture and theology. Today we're going to focus on how they affect the body and how they affect your rewards. So today we're going to see that motives have the capability to improve. Those blanks are to improve or impair the effectiveness of the body. Is the body always effective? Effective or affected? Effective. No. No, it's not. It's not. Not, not efficiently, maybe not to its maximum. We're going to see why. Depends on the book. I think so. And faithfulness to serve. That's exactly right. Additionally, a person's motives for service impact the rewards of the judgment seat of Christ. In this lesson, we're going to focus on individual, individual's motives in the body of Christ. So a person's motives affect their rewards. A person's motives affect their rewards at the day of Christ. The next two sections, we're going to cover these two points in detail. Because it's important to understand that motives matter. So first, let's look at how an individual's motives can impair or improve the effectiveness of the body. I remember I asked JV, you know, we always talk about you never really know if someone's a disciple unless you talk to them or ask them. How did Paul know these people's motives? God had to show him because later in Corinthians, he says, you can't judge another person's motives. You can't even judge your own motives correctly all the time. Bingo. So you just taught my point. That's really more in God's realm than ours. But in this instance, to make the point that Paul's making, which I really even think emphasizes the reason we should teach it, Paul was given probably divine insight to these people's motives. These fledgling members of the body his spiritual maturity and his Christ-centered perspective eclipsed their immaturity in this, in this circumstance, in this instance. 
and it diffused really what was probably a potentially damaging situation. So let's talk about it for a second. Scripture shows that the body of Christ consists of many different parts. Who are those parts? Or what are those parts? Scripture says that there's a body, and the body has many parts. What are the parts? Right here. It's right. It's you. Who else? Just you? All the believers. All the saints are part of the body. And each part of your body has a role to play. So let's see it. And I wrote down these different things. I don't know what all you have, but if you really want to dig into this, I encourage you to dig into it. Go to the proof texts or to the references that I put alongside each answer and look them up for yourself. A lot of it, I put them in here so that we can read them together. Uh, but what we're going to see is that when the parts work in unity, the body is more effective and efficient in accomplishing its objective, which is the spiritual birth, growth, and maturity of mankind or humankind, whatever you want to say. So Romans 12, 4 through 8. He says, For just as we have many members in one body, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, who are many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Since we have gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, each one is to exercise them accordingly. Is there an expectation for us to use our gifts? You better believe it. If prophecy according to the proportion of his faith, if service in his serving, or he who teaches in his teaching, or he who exhorts in his exhortation, he who gives with liberality, with he who leads with diligence, with he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. You see a whole bunch of gifts right there in 12 verses 4 through 8. But it starts out by saying there is one body, and that body consists of many parts. <clears throat> the body of Christ sounds really churchy. And it sounds like something you would talk about in Sunday school. But a lot of people don't know how to make it tangible. Or they don't make it practical. We say the body of Christ, and we know that that's the believers, and then we move on mentally. But when you think about that, think about your body, what's that look like if your arm's broken? What's that look like if your leg gets chopped off? What's that look like if you lose an eye? Or what does that look like if your organs fail? Because each body, there's one, but it has many parts, and that's each of us. And we all have a role to play in that body. If something's not working right, is the body as effective as it could be? No. It's not. And so we have to think about that in a practical sense because Paul and Jesus and the Holy Spirit give this analogy for us to be able to make practical application off of it. So what's that body called? It's called the body of Christ. When you think about the fact that you're in Christ, you should think of the fact that you are part of the body of Christ. Being in Christ, and what, by the way, what a uh, honor... What a pleasure, what a responsibility. That in Christ and as part of his body, we get to cooperate or fellowship with him to carry out his will. 
So I put some places in here where we see that uh, the same idea that we just see that there's one body but many members within that body. And what, by the way, specifically are the parts? We just said it, but it's the believers. It's the saints. And we're going to come up on a famous passage, especially here at Stillwater Bible, because our foundational class is called what? 4.12. And that's based on Ephesians 4.12. I want to look at this passage, Ephesians 4.11-16, through 16, and pull it apart. Because when you get this, when you get this, the, the core of this idea, it has the ability to change your life. That's why it's the foundational message that we start with at Stillwater Bible. Because most people think that eternal life is the finish line. Once you got it, you're good. Move on. Eternal life is the starting line. It's the foundational piece that we need in order to serve and to carry out the calling with which we've been called. So it says he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers. What are those? So he gave gifts. This isn't in your book, but just follow along with me. Okay? Why did he give the gifts in verse 12? Equip the saints. Who are the saints? Believers. So he gave gifts for who? Believers. For the believers to use, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. Have you ever met anybody that says that spiritual gifts are for them? and for their own personal relationship and so that they can have a special time with God? I have. I almost married a girl whose family believed that. And I asked her dad, do you really think that your ability to speak in tongues puts you on a higher plane with God? And he said yes. And I wasn't equipped enough or mature enough at that point to be able to say, that's for the body, not for you. How are you edifying the body? How are you building up the body with your gift? Because that's a question that we all have to ask, not just for the people who are using it wrong, but for the gift that you have so that you can use it right. Until what? What's that really saying? until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a, until we attain to maturity, until we attain to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. What does that sound like? That's exactly right. Being conformed to the image of Christ. In Romans 8.29, for those whom he pre foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's the exact same thing. Until we attain uh, to the stature, the example, which belongs to the fullness, the maturity of Christ. So he gave us gifts so that we can build up the body until we are what? Mature? Complete? And what's the result? 14. No longer children. We're no longer children. We're not infants. Tossed here and there by waves. Carried about by every wind of doctrine. You ever seen a little kid out in the ocean 
out just a little too far. They're getting destroyed and getting drowned and they're getting moved around by the waves. Well, what we, what I think that we normally see is somebody who goes off on some strange tan tangent to the, you know, they'll, whether it's speaking in tongues or works or, you know, you can get carried away by things that are not true if you don't have the maturity that comes from being built up with the body. Bingo. That's the point. That's literally the point of what he's talking about here. The author of Hebrews says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God, and you've come to need milk and not solid food. We're supposed to be mature. We're supposed to be off the milk and into the solid food so that when those people who are getting tossed by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming, we step in and say, that's, no, no, let me show you where you're wrong. Because we can take them to the Word of God and say, that's not what the Word of God says. Your spiritual gifts are for the body. And it's so that it can be built up, so that it can grow, so that it can spiritually mature. Not for you. Speaking of truth and love, we are to grow up in all aspects. Granny tells me to grow up all the time. <laughs> but that's what she, I mean, this is what he's saying. We're supposed to grow spiritually. We're supposed to get more and more conformed to the image of Christ. We're supposed to spiritually mature so that we can be effective in the body. And that's what he's about to say. Look, we're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head. Even who? In Christ. He's our example from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what? What are we fit and held together by? Did I put it in your book? What every joint supplies. Who are the joints? We are. According to the proper working of what? Each individual part. This idea that if you're not a teacher or that if you're not a pastor or that if you're not an elder shepherd that you don't have a place in the body is garbage. It says here that according to the proper working of each individual part being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies. That's you. That's me. Whatever body you have is necessary for the body. There are people who need your gift. Or else God wouldn't have given to you and he probably wouldn't have you here. What you do with that gift is wholly dependent on you. On your willingness and on your faithfulness to put it into action. So it's based on the proper working. And I'm going to focus on what word of these two. In context of this lesson, the proper working. Because these people are working, but they're not doing it appropriately. They're giving out the message, and Paul in his maturity is able to say, 
Only that in every way, whether in pretense, these fakers, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and that's my mission, so I'm going to rejoice. Because my mission is to proclaim the gospel message to the world. And they're doing it, even though they're not doing it for the right reasons. My ends are being achieved, so I'll rejoice in that. That's a proper, appropriate, spiritually mature perspective for him to take. And hopefully these other people are watching because they're new believers and they need this message. They need a good example. Okay. We're doing good on time. So in Romans 4.6 and Ephesians 4.11, what do the members of the body receive? Spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. If you don't know what your gift is, we have a thing on the website that you can use to help you. It's not science, but it, mine were right. It nailed mine. My number one is faith. My number two is exhortation. And my number three is teaching. Some people only have one. That's good. Brandy, I think, has one or two. I know what Reese's is. I don't know what Jillian's is. Probably Mercy. But that's important to identify what they are so that I can encourage my kids to go use their gift in the body. What if our parents would have done that? What if your parents would have done that? What if we were serving from the time that we were kids? How much impact could we have had on this world around us? We may have hit the tipping point, we may not, but we still got to try. We still have to do what we're supposed to do because the Word of God doesn't change. What are believers supposed to do with their spiritual gifts? And I can't beat this horse enough. Serve the body. That's exactly right. Serve the body. He gives them to us in verse 12. It says, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body. First Peter 14 says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it as a good steward of the manifold grace of God. God in his grace gave you the gift. He didn't have to do it. And he wants you to be a good steward with that, to use it in the body. Don't sit on it. We're not going to see it today, but later when we're talking about rewards again, we're going to see parables where people sit on their gift. And what does Jesus say to them? Lazy. You wicked and lazy slave. How would you like that? How would you like if the creator of existence called you a wicked and lazy slave? So when we talk about being a bondservant, we talk about being a slave, we talk about rewards, and we talk about spiritual gifts, it's for your good and for His glory. And if you're faithful to do it, you're going to get rewarded. So in Ephesians 4, 16 through 17, what's the emphasis? And I highlight, I bolded it in that passage. What happens when the body is appropriately functioning and serving? It causes the growth of the body. The body grows and matures. In 412 we teach that that growth is spiritual. But if we have the gift of evangelism in this church and we're faithful to use it, what else happens? It grows numerically. And there's people that we in this church who have the gift of evangelism. There's people that we support who have the gift of evangelism. If you guys want to see it in action, next time Alan comes, go evangelize with him on campus. It's cool. It's so cool to see somebody with that gift. It's hard for me. I don't have it, but I still do it. we got to do it. 
So we know that believers receive spiritual gifts so that they can serve effectively. And when members serve effectively, the body grows. However, the parts of the body consist of humans. That's you and it's me. And therefore we're susceptible to corrupt motives. We are. Just like our human bodies. The body of Christ is less effective and less efficient when parts are absent, when they're disjointed, when they're infected, when they're working against one another. When some parts aren't functioning appropriately, the proper working of each individual part, the members become less efficient and experience additional burden and strain. I want to show you this one. Because in this situation, we, we already know that Paul defends against these rivals, against their body, the body of Christ's threatening behavior, by realigning his focus to a unifying and shared outcome, which is what? The proclamation of Jesus Christ. Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ. I'm going to shift it off these guys, and we're going to talk about what our unity, what our unified purpose is. His actions point towards one of the main themes throughout Philippians in the New Testament. And that's that unity of purpose is of chief importance in the body of Christ. That's why we beat on our purpose, plan, and process so much. I know that a lot of people complain. They say, all we hear about is purpose, plan, and process. We know that we're supposed to make disciples. We know that we're, we gather and scatter. and We gather for evangelism and service. That's because it's important. It's because that's what Jesus tells us to do. And thank God that we teach a purpose, plan, and process at this church because we're aligning with God's will when we do it, when we teach it, and when we know it. So verse 25. So keep in mind, this is just a few verses after what we just saw here in 11 through 16. He's still on unity. He says, Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth to each one of you with his neighbor. Why? Because we're members of one another. It's okay to be angry. Just don't sin. Don't let the sun go down in your anger. Don't give the devil an opportunity. If you're a thief, don't steal any longer. But you should work. Perform with your hands not what is good, not what's bad, so that you'll have something to share with the one who's in need. Don't be a taker. There's two types. Boone Pickens always said there's two types of people in this world. There's givers and there's takers. Be a giver and surround yourself with givers and you'll succeed. I heard him say that once. I wrote it down. I thought, oh, that's good. Yeah, it's biblical, by the way. Don't be a thief. Don't be a taker. Instead, labor so that you'll have something to share with. Let, here's a good one. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification. That's the same word as in uh, verse 12 for the building up of the body of Christ. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for the building up of the body, according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice, by the way, he says. Be kind to one another tenderhearted and forgiving each other just, in God, just as God in Christ is also forgiving you. What does it mean that in the, in the verse 25 there, what does it mean when he says, for we're all members of one another? 
We're all members of the body. We're all one body. We're all one. Which makes what these people are doing to Paul in Philippians, or in, when he's in Rome, it makes them it makes them seem immature. They're attacking their own body with their mouth. They're verbally putting down their own body. Look at the instructions in verse twenty-five through thirty-two. What do all these have to do? Barbie already hit it on the head, so you can say it again. What do they all have to do with being one body? They all either provoke, promote unity or they promote division. Notice that every single one of these actions involves two parties. Speak truth to who? To each one of you with his neighbor, because you're all members of one another. Be angry and do not sin. Don't let the sin go down in your anger and give the devil an opportunity. Why are you giving the devil an opportunity when you don't deal with your problems? Bef- gives you these ideas of ways to get back at people. That's exactly. It festers. If you don't deal with it and you go to sleep angry, it festers. Sometimes I've gone to mad, mad, be- uh, gone to bed mad at Brandy, but I thought, okay, if I'm gonna go to bed, I'm not gonna deal with it. I can't be mad at her in the morning. <laughs> I'm just gonna forgive it. Just not deal with it. He who steals. That's taking from somebody. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for the building up, so that it gives grace to those who hear it. So all these deal with other people. Same thing. What promotes division? Specifically, what promotes division in the body here? You can put any of it. Lying, sinful anger, because there is a difference between righteous anger and sinful anger. Stealing, unwholesome words, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander, all those things. Whatever you want to write, you can write all those down. So in what actions here promote unity? Speaking truth. That promotes unity. Dealing with issues that make you angry. It's okay to be mad at someone. Just don't go off and try to rally a faction of people around you because that creates division. Don't let it fester in you because that creates division. Go deal with it or forgive them. It's better to deal with it so that you're not always having to forgive them over and over again. Working to provide for the needs of others. Isn't that what he says? Don't steal but work so that you can share with others. You don't mean you don't work so you can have more? Right, that's a yeah. That's contrary to this world. It's contrary to the world system. A lot of people were. I remember I got my first paycheck and I just went blue on Jordans. I wanted Jordans so bad. My mom had always said, "No, we're not spending hundred dollars on shoes." I got that first paycheck and I was out because I wanted. I wanted more. I want another pair. That's not what I should have done. But you know, sixteen-year-old kid, you're stupid. <laughs> that's a good point. But yeah, if you think about that, the world system says that you go to work and that you do everything that you do for fame, for power, for money, for sex, whatever it is. That's what the world wants us to do. And this stands in opposition to what the world wants. Paul says go work so that you can give it away. Edifying words, that promotes unity. 
kindness, tenderheartedness, forgiveness, all of those things promote unity in the body. Did I did I have blanks for you on un, un, unwholesome words there? Did I take I think I ended up taking it out. I didn't think we'd have time, and we don't, so I'm gonna move it even if we do have it. So these specific rivals of Paul acted with ill will toward him. Their attempt to kick him while he was there presented an opportunity for division in the body. But Paul chose unity by focusing on the common bottom line purpose of this message, which is the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And I put this little part here, and I almost left it out. And I had it as a teacher note, but I wanted to, I wanted to put it in here so that you can read it because it's so true. And we need to be encouraged, number one. And number two, you need to know it's coming. There will be times when your fellow members function properly, but there will also be times that they function improperly. Like Paul, and like Kevin said, this is really a God's realm. You can't really control other people's motives or their faithfulness to serve. You can't. You can try to encourage them. You can try to motivate them. You can pray for them, but you, they don't even know. You can pray for them. You may not even be able to identify their motives, even if you ask them. However, you can maintain faithfulness in your service and in your walk with the Lord. Thank you. And follow Paul's example, and as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all people. In this next section, we're going to see that this type of faithfulness leads to a more productive body, but it also is going to culminate in rewards for you at the judgment seat of Christ. I have an appendix I put in the back because I was searching for some verses on unity because it's not taught on enough. So I put it in the back just so that you can have it if you want to read them and study them and memorize them. Unity is a big deal in Scripture for all those reasons we just talked about. So look at those verses if you want to later. I just wanted to give those to you. All right, 4.4, the bottom line. Let's get to the Raccula. Paul says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. What's pretense? Falsehood. What? Yeah, phoniness. I like that a lot. Yeah, you're both right. They're the same thing. You ever know anybody who is always posturing to be something that they're not? I did that a lot, especially in my teenage years, especially in college. Well, teenagers do. <laughs> yeah. I, I wanted. I think it's. I think it's part of being single. <laughs> yeah, peacock puts their feathers out. <laughs> or their Jordans. Yeah, or their Jordans. Whatever. But that's you know if you think about it that's that's a big deal, especially in the body. We want to we want people to think that we're super mature and spiritual, and that we have a corner of the market we have a corner on the market of truth. And I know some things that they don't, or maybe someday they'll get it. And that's garbage. That's not what we're supposed to do. That's what these people were doing. They were acting like they were something they weren't. They were acting as new believers. Like they should have the same position as Paul. They wanted the notoriety. They wanted to proclaim themselves while pushing him down. They're just posturing. And Paul rejoices because of Christ's proclamation. Regardless of people's motives, they're preaching Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. That's always cause for rejoicing. When J. Vernon McGee taught this, um, he talked about, I, I may have told you this before, so if I have, I'm sorry. 
that he talked about how at the time when he was teaching, women preachers in California were a big deal. And they were, you know, they'd gone to some park or something, and some guy was saying something to him about what a shame, and, you know, we should go stop her from preaching and teaching. And he had the thought, the real shame is that there's not a man replacing her to do it. Right. There's somebody with the gift of teaching who's sitting on their gift. In that way, Javier and he's saying the exact same thing. Yeah, it shouldn't be happening, but what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice. Because Christ is being proclaimed. Throughout the course of history, God has used both good and bad vessels to achieve his ends. He urges believers to take part in his ministry. In Romans 12, 1 and 2, he begs us, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. 2 Corinthians 5, 17-21, that we've been given a ministry. We're, we've been given the ministry of reconciliation. He begs us on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. We can take that message out to a fallen world. We're supposed to take part in his ministry, and he's given you both the power and the ability to do it. Believers should always check on motives. This is a rhetorical question. The answer is obvious, but it's something that you should check yourself against. Should you posture in pretense for your own edification? Or should you serve to make him known? Because if you think about your service, if I get up here and I'm like, man, I'm going to teach Philippians because if so, you know, many people think I'm a big deal. Or, you know, maybe they'll think better of me than I am. I'm doing it for the wrong reasons. I've got my reward in full. <coughs> Uh, I had a gut check last semester during COVID and I was going to teach this and Dave was the only person who signed up for it. I was like, does it matter who's in there or am I going to be faithful to serve? I, so I told JV, I said, I'd do it if it was just one person. We talked about it and he said, why don't you wait? Let's see what happens after COVID and you can teach it. And that, I mean, I wanted to, but I would have taught it to one person. I will teach it to one person. I don't care what you think about me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's the right attitude to have is I'm not serving you I am but really I'm doing it for God's glory our verse this week that we're going to talk about is powerful it says whatever you do do your work heartily as to the Lord rather than for men knowing that from the Lord you receive the reward of the inheritance it's the Lord Christ whom you serve I do it for your good but I do it for his glory and that's how we all should serve. You all have a gift that you should do for the good of the body. Because if the body is effective, who gets the glory? God does. So I say all that to say that you shouldn't serve for recognition. You shouldn't serve for popularity. There's no place in effective ministry for jealousy, for strife, for self-righteousness, for unhealthy competition. While I was studying for this last summer... I had this conversation with my dad, and he goes, I just don't see how you can be competitive in Christianity, in your Christian life. And he, I knew what he was getting at. He was getting at this point to where you don't serve out of competition. You don't, you don't serve to say, I'm better than the next guy, or I'm you know, better than the next gal. But there is healthy competition. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. 
when Hunter challenged me to memorize this book, it changed my life. We had a friendly or a healthy competition in memorization, and in doing so, I was blown away. That's healthy competition. There is a place for healthy competition, but not unhealthy competition. Because if it becomes a competition to be seen or to be heard, especially in an attempt to make people think that you're smarter than you are or more holy than you are or more effective to them, it's nothing more than posturing done with the wrong motives. If your, ser- if your service in the body is to promote yourself rather than Jesus, you're doing it wrong. If your sole outcome is financial gain, there's a lot of that going on in our world today. It's done with the wrong motives. There's not going to be a reward for health and prosperity, health and wellness gospel. Not for them. Maybe they're leading people to Christ. Christ, I don't know. Their motives are wrong, though. That all falls under selfish ambition. It's selfish ambition. I meant to fill all this in, but I didn't get to it. So motives and reward. I want to go ahead and get there because we have about five or two minutes left. The first part of this lesson revealed the difference between sincere and insincere motives and their effect on the body. The next portion will address your motives for service and their effect on rewards to judgment seat of Christ. Listen, some of the stuff we're going to cover in the next five minutes is very elementary. You know it. You could have written it. But it's important that we start there. We're going to go quickly through it. It's important that we start there so that we can progress the argument in your mind so that you are rooted, so that it's rooted in you, and so that you will be able to teach this to somebody who doesn't know it, to somebody who needs the elementary. So let's go through it real quick. If you know this stuff, then think about how you would teach it to somebody else. It's important to understand and mentally separate the difference between a gift and a reward. You know that, but we're going to talk about it. Scripture makes a clear distinction between the two. And if Christians don't apply that distinction, it's going to affect their understanding of how a person obtains eternal life. You guys know this. A gift is something freely given to someone. That's a gift. It's something transferred by one person to another without compensation. Does that make sense? What is the free gift that we've been given? Eternal life. Perfect. A reward is something given to someone because they earned it. it. We do not earn eternal life. You know it, but some of the people who are listening may not. We don't earn eternal life. Otherwise, it's not a gift. A gift and a reward are not the same thing. They can't be. Eternal life is a gift that comes through faith or believing in Jesus as Savior. A person can never be justified before God or viewed as righteous by God by doing anything. You cannot, etern- you cannot earn eternal life. All who believe in Jesus receive the gift of eternal life. A person's best attempts at righteousness are what? They are filthy rags. Okay. And I want you to read this and think about it. I bolded it because I want you to think about it. Jesus' work is not only sufficient for humanity, but it was only possible for him. He's the only one that could have done the work, and he did it. 
He was the only person qualified to die for your sins and the only one with the power to rise again and conquer death. It's important that when we give people the gospel message that this is the focus. Works has a part to play in eternal life salvation, just not our works. Jesus did the work and he has now sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father because the work is over. So John 3.16, Ephesians 2.8-9, uh, John 5, 24, Romans 5, 1 John 5, 13, Galatians 2, 16, all these verses, many other, demonstrate that eternal life is a gift given to those who believe in Jesus Christ. A lot of times at this church, we talk about and hand out the Gospel of John. Why? It's the easiest book to read. It's really easy to read. One of my favorite things about John is in chapter 20, he tells you the reason it was written. That's really helpful in interpretation, by the way. So that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. There are more than ten passages in the book of John which explicitly teach that eternal life comes by faith in Jesus Christ. I, Brent and I went back and forth, uh, I don't know how long ago it was now, but he had a list just like I had a list and I was comparing them against him so that I could write this. Um, additionally there are eight or more other passages in the book which implicitly what does it mean to implicitly yeah it's implying it's not the words Jesus Christ faith and eternal life may not be there but it's what it's talking about and it's clear to see it there's a lot of other ones that I kept off this list because they weren't clear to the layman there's a ton of verses that can go in here but I wanted to have integrity to anybody who hasn't ever looked at this. There are a lot of verses that explicitly teach it and implicitly teach that eternal life comes by faith in the book of John. So I put the, the verse there, right there. Many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. And then there's the list. If you want to take somebody and say, look, in the book of John, it uses the word faith 160 times. That's true. If you want to say, look, in the book of John, it says over 10 times explicitly that eternal life is by faith. There you go. Show them those verses. And then if that's still not enough, you can say, here's some verses that it implicitly says that eternal life is by faith. Use these verses to your advantage because we have the purpose that the book was written and we have all these examples of where eternal life comes from in Scripture. John 3, 17 through 18. You guys said Romans 8, 1 earlier. John, John 5, 24. Romans 5, 31. Or 5, 1. Romans 8, 34 tell us that believers will never stand before God and be condemned for their sin. Eternal life comes by faith, faith in because he's the only one that can do it. He is the Messiah. He's the promised one. The person who was prophesied about. He came and did the work. And because he did the work, we put our faith in him. And that's not all. That's great news, but, it's, but wait, there's more. We also are never going to stand condemned. That's huge. That is huge. Everything, every sin that you've committed, all the stuff that you were supposed to do that you didn't do, none of that. When Satan accuses you before Jesus, he stands as your intercessor and your advocate. He says, sorry, they're in me. They have my righteousness, and they can't be condemned because of it. We're free. 
If we never stand before Jesus Christ for judgment then, then why do we stand before him? Bingo. The judgment seat of Christ is a time of evaluation for rewards. So we talked about the difference between a gift and eternal life for this moment. So that when you talk to somebody about the kingdom of God, you can clearly articulate, it can't be for eternal life, because that's a gift. But here's a whole bunch of scripture that talks about rewards. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed or given back for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. We're going to talk about the bad here in a second, but that's not bad works. It's worthless works. It's works that don't matter. This is 2 Corinthians. He already wrote them once in 1 Corinthians, giving them an example of good and precious and lasting rewards and bad and worthless and unlasting rewards. They worked at something. They did it, yeah, sure. He says they they did work and they built on the foundation of Jesus. Yep. But it just didn't amount to anything. Didn't amount to anything. Because either they were doing it for the wrong motives or it just wasn't something that, it was probably the wrong motives, which is why we're teaching this today. So Jesus took the, what? Penalty? He took the penalty of sin on the cross. What is the penalty of sin? Death. Death. First Peter 2.24 echoes Isaiah 53.5 and he himself bore in his body our sins on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness for by his wounds you were healed. Second Corinthians 5.21 he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the perfect righteousness of God in him. He's a satisfactory payment, not for our sins only, but for that of the entire world. He paid for the penalty of sin on the cross. Therefore, believers are never condemned. You're never going to get judged and be found wanting or lacking. You are full of his righteousness at any judgment because you put your faith in him as Messiah. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. He did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes him is not condemned. He who does not believe has been judged already or condemned already because he hasn't believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So believers receive in the ESV, receive back in the Berean literal, or are repaid in Barb CSB, or recompensed in the NASB. All of those things mean that you're given back for our deeds in the body. Because of what you've done, the good stuff that you've done, you're going to get something back for that. Can you be given back for your sin? No, because it's already paid for. It's already paid for. It's dealt with. Now, you can miss out on rewards because of your sin, but that's not, you're getting something back for your sin. You just missed out on opportunities because of your sin. There's no condemnation. Believers are not repaid for sin at the judgment seat of Christ. Jesus already paid the price, nor are believers condemned for sin ever. So where's the confidence in the translation that bad equals not uh, useful? Or Yeah, let's talk about it right now. So he's in 2 Corinthians. 
He's already told them that, first of all, if you wanted to look at that word bad, it can mean corrupt or worthless. J.D. always talks about rotten fruit. It's fruit, just not any good. So even if you didn't want to trust that, trust in this. 1 Corinthians is actually the second letter he's writing back to them. Okay? And he gives them this, we're about to read. He's going to talk about some worthless deeds. And then in 2 Corinthians 5, he's calling back to these ideas. So the word bad in 2 Corinthians has the idea of worthless or of no value, maybe is a better way to say it. Paul previously wrote Corinth, and in that letter, he had outlined an allegory describing the idea of valuable and worthless works. So here in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 5 through 15, there's an argument going on. Some people are saying, oh, I'm of Apollo. Some people are saying, no, I'm of Paul. And other people are saying, no, I'm of Jesus. You're both wrong. So Paul writes to correct him. He says, what then is Apollos? And what's Paul? They're just servants through whom you believed, even as the Lord gave opportunity to us. I planted, Apollos watered, but God was causing the growth. So that neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything at all, but God who causes the growth. Now, I guess you can say that to the one who plants and the one who waters are one, but each will receive his own reward according to his labor. For if we're God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. And for my part, according to the grace of God which was given me, like a wise master, builder, I laid a foundation. And another is building on it. That's Apollos. But each person must be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay a foundation other than me, the one which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Don't get away from the foundation when you give the gospel message. Jesus Christ is the point of everything that we give out. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, each one's work will become evident, for the day will show it because it is to be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each one's work. Then their memory verse, if everyone's work which he has built on it remains, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss of rewards. But he himself will be saved, yet only as through fire. So let's think about it. Gabe, how would you characterize the wood, hay, and straw that's going to be tested by fire in that passage? Temporary, unsustaining, fleeting. In terms of the foundation that they're building, like Kevin said, they're building with it. What good is it? It's gone. It's burned up because the fire that's going to test it is going to prove it to be worthless. What's the good stuff that lasts? Yeah, gold, silver, precious stones. Yep, that's the stuff that's going to last. That's the good. So you're going to be given back for your deeds in the body, whether they're good or worthless. So... Let's make the application. Why do 1 Corinthians 3, 10, and 11, what does that have to do with motives? Why does how do we work matter? Isn't that what he says? Each person must be careful how he builds on it. Are these people in Philippians, are they building on the foundation appropriately? No. Yes, yeah, some of them are, but we're talking about these guys. The Indian strifers are not. They're doing it for the wrong reason. They're not doing it to promote Christ. They're doing it to promote themselves. So how does the believer who is 
believing they're coming from Holy Spirit empowered motive have the understanding if they're building wood, hay, or straw until later when it proves out. That would be a concern for people to... It would be. What's one thing that we know that they can filter their motives through? The word 100%. So then would we claim that all, all properly based, all work that has the right motive cannot be wood, straw, hay? So you're asking if good works done with the right motives are the precious gems. Correct? Yes, if they are. If it, can, does that necessarily exclude that uh, other, other works that we do that we think are to the best of our spiritual understanding, are they going to count? I, in the in the course of witnessing, this comes up so often where I, I get stuck and I can't move past, like, you know, um, with people who get hung up on this judgment seat issue mm -hmm. and not being sure. Yep. And, um, you know, they depart from me, I never knew you, stuff starts coming into the conversation. But that's, yeah, but that's not... It's a pulled out part that's not part right. of this, but it goes into this whole thing, how can you know? Yeah. That what you're doing is good stuff. How, how, what's the evaluation of your motive until the end when it's all? Well, let's see. Let's look, let's look at. Are we still getting there? Okay, good. No, no, no. Okay. I mean, there's certain things we do get from Scripture based on my understanding. Like Kevin said, you can't. Uh, sometimes you don't know your motives. You can know what to avoid, which is selfish ambition, envy, strife, all that type of stuff. Deeds of the flesh. Why you do what you do is important. And that's why we get this type of message and what Jesus is going to talk about right here. Let's look and see. Matthew 6. Take care not to practice your righteousness in the sight of people. What's their motive? To be seen. To be seen. To be noticed by them. Otherwise you have what? No reward. There's no reward in heaven for that. So when you give to the poor, don't sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and the streets, so that they will be praised by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But when you give to the poor, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your charitable given will be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will what? Reward you. Not just giving. What about prayer? And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues on the street corners so that they'll be seen by people. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But as for you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So to answer your question, yeah, I think there's a rubric. I think that the motives and your faithfulness, we know for a fact from Scripture, matter. Well done, good and faithful servant. The parable of the talents, the parable of the meanest, the people who faithfully take those things into service are rewarded. The people who sit on it are not. So we have information there. We have information from 1 Corinthians 3. We have information from Matthew 6. We have information from Colossians 3. Whatever you do, do your work heartily as to the Lord, not for men, 
Because knowing that from the Lord we'll receive the reward of the inheritance. It's the Lord Christ whom you serve. Then there's the verses that talk about don't hide your light under a bushel and let your light shine so that they may see your the good works and your exactly the whole The whole thing is resting on motive. Yep. It is. Motives matter. I'm out of time, but I want you guys to look at this back page. YouTube game, especially because I want you to poke holes in it. What if this is the rubric? <coughs> What if this is the grading? What if this is what God gives us to grade? The back chart. We want our motives to be pure and sincere all the way up, and we want to be faithful all the way over. Right? Isn't that? Jesus is over here in the inner circle. Now, on this chart, it's the outer lightness, but maybe <laughs> in the kingdom, it's the outer darkness. For the people who have believed, but there's just no reward. Number one, that's a lazy or inactive believer with inappropriate intentions. There's no reward in that. They got their reward in full. They believe they're there. They're on the chart. But they're not in one of those rings. What about number two? They're really high. They had good motives. I think there's probably some people who believe the right stuff and think the right things. They just don't ever put into service. They're lazy and active believers with appropriate intentions. I think there's a lot of people here at number three. For half their life, they don't do jack squat. Then they get older. The time, you know, maybe the clock's ticking. They say, okay, you better put it into service. <laughs> <laughs> that one's me. I'm probably somewhere there. I hope. I hope. Act number four, maybe this is me. I'm an active believer with inappropriate intentions. Maybe Catholicism. People who work really hard to do something, but they're not doing it for the right reason. That's a group that I'm working with a lot. Yeah. That's where we get stuck a lot. Right. So, active believer with appropriate <coughs> intentions. Yeah, you can't see it. This was in color. It just didn't come through. But I want you to think about that and poke holes in it. So look at this stuff. The application, I have my applications really long. I was going to read all this to you, but we time. So, evaluate your motives. Serve the Lord for His purposes, not your own. I, I think it was good what Paul said. In spite of people's motives, God's plan is going to go forward. 100%. And when we question whether we're doing things for the right motives, or if we think, I'm not going to do something because I might mess it up, I might say the wrong thing, or do it wrong. I think that just says Christ's plans are going to. Well, people who actively try their best to thwart God's plans can't do it. So if we want to do what's right, there's no way we can mess up so bad that God's plans are not going to. Amen. Go you forward. just get humbled along the way. So <laughs> that's true. What he's saying is true. It's accurate. God's plans will be accomplished. Yet we have a part to play. And if we are and if we are faithful to do what we're supposed to otherwise, if he didn't want us to be a part of those plans, he wouldn't have given us gifts. And he wouldn't have given us parables about the kingdom and about our gifts. He wants us to do that stuff. You're right. His ultimate ends will be achieved, but yet the, there's a field out there that needs harvesting. And whether like you're saying try your best and do it, don't hold back yeah. out of fear of your own self messing up. Right? 
Right. I, I think that's part of it, and and his plans are going to go forward regardless of what we do. But are we going to get a reward for for right. what we do, or are we not going to get a reward? Depends upon whether we do anything and whether we do it for the right motive. Or not. Yeah, I agree with that thousand percent. So we established for the first four weeks. We know a little bit about rewards now. We're going to. There's good rewards. There's motives involved. Uh, we're going to start talking about specifically what those are, because it sounds cool to talk about rewards. But what does it mean? So anyway, you can see that the test is there for next week. I want you to memorize Colossians three twenty three and twenty four. Know what the motives of Paul's opponents were. The people who understood Paul's purpose know what their motives were. Understand uh, how your motives have the ability to affect the body. What are believers supposed to do with their spiritual gifts? Know what happens when the body is appropriately functioning or serving. Why are motives relevant to the conversation pertaining to spiritual gifts? Let's pray. Thanks again for joining us for True to the Bible podcast with Hunter Davis. If you enjoyed this lesson, make sure you subscribe so you can hear the rest of the lessons on True to the Bible podcast. And if you have any questions regarding this lesson or any of the other lessons, make sure you contact us at hunter.davis at stillwaterbible.org. Thanks again for joining us.